The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Views Room, a podcast from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Jennifer Saba. On tap for this week, we'll be discussing the CEO search at Wells Fargo before passing the baton to our colleagues in Asia who will chat about the Chinese liquor company that is going gangbusters. Before we get to the firewater, I have in the studio with me Breaking Views U.S. editor John Foley, joining me to chat about Wells Fargo. Hi, John. Hi, Jen. All right. So last month, Wells Fargo CEO Tim Sloan handed in his resignation, ending a 31-year career with the bank. And in some ways, that was part of the problem. He was an insider who took over for John Stumpf, the chief executive who was responsible or at the very least not catching a series of scandals, including the creation of millions of false customer accounts. So, John, finding the next CEO for the bank is going to be tough. Why? So Wells Fargo is big. Uh, It serves about one in three American households with banking services, but it's also really troubled because Wells Fargo has a history of scandals, basically. It uh, emerged that at one stage had been creating millions of fake customer accounts in order that staff could hit aggressive sales targets. It's been fined by every single one of its regulators. Um, And Tim Sloan, who was brought in to try and clear up the mess, uh, was an insider, as you say. Yeah. He'd been there for three decades, and he just wasn't a convincing figurehead for change in a business that basically needed to show it had totally washed away its bad old ways. So what they're now doing is uh, they're trying to find a, a successor to Sloan who comes from outside. And that is like a red rag to all kinds of uh, speculation about who might fill that role. And there are, there are various people out there who are kind of big names, who are between jobs, who are being tipped by various sources. The New York Post uh, came out early and mentioned a couple of former Goldman Sachs bankers. We've said that the best thing Wells Fargo can do is forget the A-list and focus on someone really solid from what we would call the B-team. Okay, so who are some of those B-teams? I'm sure I'm sure they might take so the issue with being a B-team. Yeah, so B is not bad in this sense. That's just to be clear. What we're saying is forget Goldman Sachs, forget JP Morgan, forget the big Wall Street banks. And this okay. is something that actually Warren Buffett, who is a big shareholder in Wells Fargo, he's got just under 10%. He actually said this the other day in an interview published by the Financial Times. He said, don't go for a Wall Street banker because it will just draw the ire of politicians who already really don't like Wells Fargo very much for some of the things it did to its customers. And we would totally agree with that. So go for second-tier banks, banks that are, that are well-run, efficient, whose share prices have been doing really well, but are smaller than Wells Fargo. Another big reason for doing that is that most of the bankers at some of these A-list Wall Street institutions are paid shed loads of money, 20-plus million dollars, and that's not even at CEO level. So if Wells Fargo, which paid Tim Sloan about $18 million dollars, mm-hmm most of which was in you know, money he couldn't get his hands on for several years, they can't really compete with someone like J.P. Morgan, who's paying 20-plus million, much more of which comes in cash up front. Okay. So focus on what you can achieve, not trying to be like the A-list Wall Street banks that already massively outbid you. Okay, so this uh, is interesting to me for a couple of reasons. One, you said that they were going to look outside, which is true, right? They're looking outside of Wells Fargo. But what I understand is why... Everybody you mentioned is within the banking industry and within the banking sector. Is this area so specialized that Wells Fargo can't say, you know what, what about 
the somebody from American Express. What about Mark Zuckerberg? Or, or Mark's, yeah, I mean, I'm just throwing that out there. I mean, is it is that problematic? And have we seen instances where banking CEOs come from someplace else other than the financial or No, that's a really good sector? question. Actually, like, banking is different from other industries in that it's very highly regulated. And the relationship that you have with the regulators is really important. So the advantage of getting a CEO who comes from a bank is that they will already have a relationship with those banking regulators. And they'll already understand how banking works, how it intersects with monetary policy and markets and all the other kind of uh, consumer trends that that a banking CEO needs to take into account. Um, now, you could, could you bring in someone from outside? It's possibly it's possible to overstate how important it is that the person is a banker. Yeah. But I, but I, and as you say, there are other industries that have brought in people from outside. That like we were talking about Dara Khosrowshahi at um, Uber, who was brought in to clean up massive messes there, and he came from Expedia, which I guess is tech, but it's not. You know, it's not quite yeah, the same. It's like as a Uber. travel website. Yeah. Um, I think, given the importance of keeping these financial institutions stable, what you don't really want is change in their operations. You just want change in their culture. So I think it's sort of unthinkable at this stage they would get someone who isn't already a banker. Okay, let's talk about the regulators because as we speak, seven of the top banking heads are sitting before Congress getting a lashing that they haven't received since the financial crisis. So what is happening there and how does Wells Fargo figure into this? So Wells Fargo doesn't figure into this precisely because it already got grilled by Congress. So Wells Fargo isn't there. No, not there today. And also, you know, Tim Sloan sat in front of Congress, was roundly tongue lashed by everyone and then quit. (laughs) So so there isn't really anyone to appear in front of Congress today. But what you've got instead today is the CEOs of Goldman Sachs and Citigroup and Morgan Stanley, State Street, um, JP Morgan's, Jamie Dimon. They're all answering questions from a bunch of um, representatives who just want to grill them on everything from are you lending enough to small businesses? Where is the diversity in your succession plan? Why do you finance gun makers? All this kind of stuff. It shows how hard it potentially is to be a bank CEO because there are are a lot of wide-ranging questions that you Mm -hmm. need to be on top of. Um, So are they, you know, are they doing well in front of this barrage of questions? Uh, When I was last looking at the hearing, the answer is not particularly. Um, Some kind of weak answers on where, you know, where is the next female CEO of a bank going to come from? The answer is there probably isn't going to be one for quite a long time. Um, why, do, why, do, why does Citigroup CEO get paid about 480 times what the median employee gets? Um, no really good answer. Same is true of JP Morgan. Um, so there are some really difficult questions that banks have to answer. When Wells Fargo has a CEO, he or she will also have to answer some of these tough questions. John, you mentioned that Warren Buffett has been making some noise about who he thinks would be the good chief executive of Wells Fargo. But I want to step back and look at how Tim Sloan ended up in the position in the first place. And, you know, it seems very obvious that perhaps an outsider should have been brought in earlier than allowing somebody who'd been there for 31 years to try and clean up a culture when that when that person is part of the culture. So... Sloan came in as a successor to John Stumpf, who really oversaw Wells Fargo during all of its um, moments of really bad behavior. And Stumpf had also appeared in front of a congressional committee, and it hadn't gone so well, and he was out. And and I guess they brought in someone who was an insider, because on one level, when things are really in in a messy state, 
you don't necessarily want someone coming in who literally knows nothing about what's going on. Mm -hmm. They're going to be totally knocked for six by what they find. So the idea is that Sloan was a kind of safe pair of hands. Um, he was an insider, so he could understand where the bank was coming from. But he could also hopefully have the independence of thought to take it in a new direction. Now, it turned out that the first half of that was probably true, that he did understand where the bank was coming from. He actually did a pretty good job um, of doing root and branch uh, reviews into how the bank performs. And the bank has actually operationally continued to do quite well. And their earnings are coming up too. Right? Their earnings are coming out on yeah. Friday, and we'll see how, how well. I mean, these things are relative. It's, it's not growing in the way that other banks are. It's not allowed to grow because its regulators have banned it from adding assets to its balance sheet. But, um, but he, you know, he, he made a good start. But there was no question that he was always going to be criticised mostly for being an insider. And that's why they've now said it's time for someone from outside. Okay, so who are some of the people on your shortlist? Right. Well, so you first of all, you have the ones that you can eat fairly easily discount. There's the, there are the Goldman Sachs bankers. Um, Gary, Gary Cohn is one. Harvey Schwartz is another. They were both kind of second in command at various times at Goldman Sachs. They're currently on the job market, but neither of them has ever run a bank, like a proper like bank. Like a commercial, yeah. with a commercial lending on it. And also, like, the last thing you want, frankly, is to attract the kind of Goldman Sachs image to Wells Fargo, because Goldman Sachs is associated with certain kinds of uh, wealth and, dare I say, excess that Wells Fargo doesn't want to have at the top of its um, corporate tree. So uh, then you've got um, people from JP Morgan, who again, we'd, we'd discount, but there are some really good people there, people like um, Mary Callahan Erdoes, who runs the Wealth Management Division, who's very impressive. Um, also Gordon Smith, who again, very impressive, runs the Retail Bank. So if you go then down to the lower tier of banks, the two, the two that we'd be really um, uh, interested in knowing whether they're looking at are US Bancorp, which has a big business in Minneapolis-St. Paul, which is um, a big business also for Wells Fargo, and PNC Financial, mm -hmm. which has a guy called William Demchek who runs that. Um, and he potentially, he's, he's paid less than Sloan was, which is obviously a start, um, and might be quite well suited to the job. And do you think, just going back on the pay issue, I mean, do you think that Sloan was paid too much? I mean, what is too much? This is this is a, a thing that is currently being talked about a lot at banks. Like, how much is too much? And, yeah. and when you look at bankers like Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan, who gets about thirty million dollars, um, they will say they will say two things. They'll say, "Well, actually, it's the board decided this, not me, and shareholders voted for it." And they will also say uh, often things like, "Well, imagine how much." this person would get if they worked for private equity. Or they'll, they'll give some other example of an industry that pays even more. Um, I mean, it's kind of hard to argue with those, but it, really the fact is, does anyone really need to be getting even $18 million yeah. to run a business, which is um, you know, doing something as simple as uh, you know, running deposit accounts and lending mortgages? Um, I don't think we're going to fix that overnight, but I would say that $18 million is a lot less than some of the other big banks are paying. And is there a sense of urgency I mean, do you get to replace a feel him. from, yeah, Wells Fargo that they've got to... Like... Well, they've put their general counsel in as the interim CEO, so someone is running it. They've got a, a strong chair of the board who's called Betsy Duke. It's not unthinkable that she could even take the job herself because actually Wells Fargo is one of only three of the top 10 American banks that separates the chair and CEO role. So, and now, was that forced on them once this whole thing blew up? or Well, they needed a strong chair, and that's what Betsy Duke was. But... So, and so in terms of the succession plan then, I mean, was this abrupt? Like, was this expected that Sloan was going to step down when he stepped down? If you watched him in front of the congressional panel, and particularly some of the more aggressive members of it, 
like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's the New York representative, who's made no secret of her feelings about Wall Street banks. He did not put forward a strong or convincing performance. He definitely seemed to be on the defensive and he flubbed a few answers and he wasn't, he wasn't impressive. Now, is that his job to be impressive in front of politicians? Not necessarily, but you certainly ended that session with a feeling that he is not a strong leader. Um, and it turns out that after that, um, some members of the Federal Reserve, which obviously regulates Wells Fargo, had had chats with employees and felt at the end of those chats that progress hadn't been made turning Wells Fargo around. So his days were kind of going to be numbered. They really always needed a strong outside chief executive. But the timing was quite a surprise. It came quite quickly. Well, the other thing that strikes me about this is the succession plan. I mean, this is a company that's been troubled for a for a while now. And you could kind of read the tea leaves with Tim Sloan, right? Like he was kind of temporary in the sense that, okay, we need you to kind of fix this and help us get through this. But you could see how that could happen. But So you would think they would have people in place, they would have candidates in mind to kind of get the ball rolling on this. You'd think, wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, and they didn't, is the simple answer. Like we're, we're always wondering who's going to replace the CEO of any given bank. Sure. And obviously they don't tell you. Or any company. Or any company, yeah. exactly. And, the, and you read the tea leaves because they'll promote people to, you know, Goldman Sachs is very good at this, so is JP Morgan. They'll put people in roles that look like they may be the CEO role next, maybe. And there are like three people who all seem to be kind of fighting out behind the scenes. But of course they don't tell you because that kind of stuff is confidential. So it's easy to give them the benefit of the doubt and say, well, they're not telling us who's going to be next, but they must know. Wells Fargo showed us that sometimes they just have no idea. They literally don't seem to have any plans. And that is extremely troubling, especially for a bank that was in as much trouble as Wells Fargo. So that's not a great sign. Indeed. All right, John, thanks for coming on the program and walking us through that. Thanks, John. I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm here in Hong Kong with our China columnist, Christopher Bedore, and we were talking about a subject near and dear to our hearts here in Hong Kong, namely booze, in this case specifically Guizhou Maotai, which makes Baijiu, Chinese fire water, which is incredibly strong, incredibly strong tasting, to put it diplomatically. And the stock has been on an absolute tear. It's up 50% year to date, maybe even more than that. It is now worth, what, $170 billion? U.S. dollars, that's bigger than most of its Western rivals put together. Chris, how did we get here? Well, the short answer is they make a lot of money, and that's how that's how we get here. Um, but I mean, more seriously, I, I think well, that's specifically how seen, much money do they make? Well, so last year, for instance, um, they made ballpark about 74 billion yuan or so. That's in, in top line revenues. Um, their net profit for the year was about $35 billion, which is actually pretty striking when you think about it because that means that their, their sort of net income margin is it's almost 50%. That's, that's really high. Um, that so stacks th- up pretty well against the, the rivals, right? Where, where's yeah, Di- Diageo at? Um, most of you know, Diageo uh, is probably around 25%. Some of their peers are, are even slightly less than that. Um, the domestic producers, more kind of the mid-market ones, usually somewhere around 34 or 33% in that range. Um, so it's, it's, very, it's very high. And that explains at least part of kind of why investors are so interested in this firm and value it so highly. And it's got it's a huge dominance on the top end of the market, right? I mean, it's market share of like 50%. Where does Wulang Ye, I mean, I think is the other brand that gets compared to, it's also seen its stock on a tear. I mean, it, how, how strong is its market position compared to, to local rivals? 
I think that monetized position is pretty strong. I mean, it, it, for the premium buy just segment, it's it's more than half of the market. Um, Overall? And, uh, for the premium segment. Yeah, just, yeah. Okay. And, uh, I, you know, I would say that, like, the the kind of brand cachet in China is, is almost difficult to describe. I mean, it was... Um, we've talked about this before. It'd be it'd be almost strange to not have by Joe sort of in front of you if you were at a very high end party or a wedding or something like that. It's, it's sort of kind of de rigueur at a lot of these fancy fancy banquets. Well, and this is kind of what what blew back on Mao Tai before, right? Because it was mm-hmm. very popular at, at government banquets, and we had a lot of pressure during the anti corruption campaign, which is technically still ongoing. You know, against officials partying it up with super expensive bottles of Mao Tai. I mean, it's not cheap either. I mean, that knocked the 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 stuffing out of this stock. Um, but I mean, we've had such a vigorous rally for so long at this point. I mean, it was doing well last year as well. Uh, how much how much further does this stock have to run, do you think? Well, I think that the overall market is also up. So in, in part, it might just be reflecting, uh, I think, what we see in this, you know, a more stable economy that benefits large fruit producers. Like you say, Mao Tai is, is quite expensive. It retails, um, at least one of its popular brands retails for usually around 250 U.S. dollars per bottle. So it's it's definitely not for kind of your average, everyday, middle-class consumer drinking day in and day out. Um but I think that, you know, you mentioned that the anti-corruption campaign, and that definitely is sort of a risk with this stock, which is the feeling had been that government officials in particular should not be enjoying this sort of very high-end drink that was widely thought to be kind of lubricating some deals, especially with the private sector. And so the anti-corruption campaign was one of a few factors that helped to kind of drive the company's um, earnings down to, you know, single-digit range for, for about three years there. So, um, yeah, it's come, it's come roaring back. Last year it was, it was doing about 30% profit. Um, but it's, you know, that's a risk that investors well, have to think about. And is this charge another leading indicator of corruption slipping back in or, um, you know, China's pushing to spend more on infrastructure again to stimulate its economy? Is Maltai profiting from this or has their, their customer base changed? Well, I think at the very least you could say that markets think that at least Maltai and I, I would say the entire kind of luxury segment is looking a bit better than they thought it looked, say, at the start of the year, even late last year, that the economy is not quite as bad as it seemed. Um, not to say that it's it's doing great now. It's clearly still cooling. Um, but when you kind of take away that worst-case scenario, um, suddenly your prospects for a luxury stock like Maotai uh, look a lot differently than they did earlier in the year. Okay. But assuming that that's baked into the price, I mean, how much further... I mean, does does it seem to you like in a in an ordinary market that Maotai would have even more more room to run, more more value? I mean, it's it's still not that expensive a share. It's right? it's a great question. Well, in an ordinary market, it would probably not command the margins that it does right now. But also in an ordinary market, it probably would not have the political overhang of an anti-corruption drive. Well, you know, and the resurgent. political overhang has popped back up, too, weirdly enough. I mean, so we had, like, state media warning about the, the sudden sharp uptick in, in Baijiu maker shares, specific, specifically Mao Tai and Wulang Ye, I think. Where, where did that come from? I mean, is there, is there more of that in store? Well, so, yeah, occasionally with the stock, you do get weird episodes, like state media coming out and saying, we just think that the share price is going up too far, too fast. But, I mean, the, st- the state owns a stake in these companies, like through the central Beijing. This is, that just seemed quite odd. What do you think was behind it? 
It's really hard to say. I mean, it's possible that it, it really was just on the face of it. They saw a stock that they thought looked bubbly and they were going to try to intervene and, and calm things down. Maybe to a certain extent, the optics of this particular stock really surging did not look fantastic either. So that might have played a role. As always with, with state media, it's it's not entirely clear. But, but I think could have just been a freelancer. Else, <laughs> right. If, if nothing else, uh, I think it does emphasize that um, – politicians watch this stock perhaps to a greater degree than they do your typical Chinese stock. And um, there is, you know, a risk associated with that. Well, fascinating. Um, And uh, interesting that this this company is so well known in China and drunk so rarely overseas. Um, But given how strong it is and the flavor, I guess that's not that surprising. But um, anyways, thanks for talking with Chris. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, John Foley, Pete Sweeney, and Chris Bedore. And hats off to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio and Freddie Joyner. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com, and don't forget to tune in next week for another edition. 